Welcome to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, where we talk to change makers and innovators focused on upending systems not designed by or for them to create a more inclusive and equitable world. I'm your host, Sarah Chapman Becerra. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. I am really excited for you to be a part of this conversation. Today, our guest is Kim Desmond. Kim is the first chief of race and equity for the city of San Diego. Kim and I met through a mutual friend in the diversity, equity, and inclusion arena. And since day one, her thought partnership in this work has been a blessing. Over the course of our conversation, we get into her journey to coming into the role of leading San Diego's Department of Race and Equity, and how many of her key philosophies that she integrates into this work were shaped. We talk about the importance of community and coalition building and how she's cultivated the community she's needed along her journey. And also liberation and how she learned what it means for her and for others. I am so glad you're here for this. Let's get into it. Before we dive into our conversation, let me tell you a little bit more about Kim. Kim Desmond was born and raised in the Five Points neighborhood in Denver, Colorado, where she graduated from Manual High School. Kim has over 15 years of experience in the nonprofit, local, and quasi-government sector within the areas of diversity, inclusion, racial equity, and addressing systemic racism. Kim holds multiple degrees, including a bachelor's in sociology and a master's in community counseling from Fort Hayes State University, a master's in education, administration, and policy studies from the University of Denver, and an early childhood leadership certification from the University of Denver. Kim is currently the Chief of Race and Equity for the City of San Diego, leading the Department of Race and Equity for Mayor Todd Gloria. Prior to this appointment, Kim served as the Director and Interim Chief Equity Officer for Mayor Michael B. Hancock, overseeing the Mayor's Office of Social Equity and Innovation within the City and County of Denver. Kim has an extensive background, operationalizing racial equity into local government programs, budget allocations, and policies through building equitable outcomes with a targeted focus on eliminating systemic racism. I feel so fortunate that we are getting to have this conversation today. Welcome to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, Kim. First and foremost, thank you, Sarah, for having me on the podcast, and thank you for starting your organization by way of trailblazing to hold space for people of color, women of color, to talk about what it means to trailblaze. So thank you. Thank you. And we would be nothing without people like you leading the charge. And when we come together and amplify that learning, we get there faster. So I'm so excited for this conversation today because I know you have so much wisdom to share. But first, let's take it back and talk about your origin story. Tell us a little bit about Kim as a kid and kind of what are some of the, the threads that infused themselves throughout your life to get you to this work today? That, that's, that's a complex question that I most certainly will talk through because I think it's very nuanced in the way in you asked it and it definitely connects to who I am, what brings me to this point in my life in this particular, I don't say job, I say purpose. Mm-hmm. And so to take it back to my origin story is to understand for me, 
the way that I refer to it, I say it's about time traveling. And when I say that, time traveling means I go back to the origins of the experiences, the people, the very tactile things like parts of where I grew up, the the, the way that the streets look, um, up until the way that the environment smelled, all the things that made me who I am are a part of, in the past, who I am today. And so that's the time traveling piece is that I time travel back to all those things, right? All the people and all the women in my life who were trailblazers, everyone, regardless of your position, you're a trailblazer because you're, you're living, right? And so I go back to that to say, who are those people? And so, and then I think about the present. How does that inform who I am today? And then it informs thinking around who do I wish to be in the future? Who do I aspire to be in the future? And so to go back to the origins of me and to get connected to who I am today really starts with the, with the backdrop of two different things. One, I played college basketball, but I also, in my bio, I purposely list Manual High School. That was the place where I still have lifetime friends from Manual High School. We have watched each other grow from 14 years of age into where we're at currently. We've watched each other grow from going to recreation centers, um, getting scholarships, to now a lot of us are principals, right? Some of my friends are all the things, entrepreneurs, right? So Manual High School was a place where I build more than friends, I built family, and they sustain me to this day. So I've got to shout out all my T-boats. That's the thing. When we T-boats is the thing. T-boats mean you got a lifetime family in us. And in that, I say that playing um, basketball as a child taught me how to really learn how to be a team player. When you're in a sports environment, particularly when you're in basketball, you have, you're on a team where everybody has different skill sets and also everybody has a different role. And so you learn early on is that you find power in the pieces of the puzzle and you find ways to work together. You find ways to fail together. You find ways to succeed together. And more importantly, you find ways to just support each other as you're going through what it may mean to even lose and take direction, take criticism, all the things that come with sports, right? how to persevere, right? So I would say that basketball literally formulated my approach to being able to weather doing anti-racist work in government because I am then positioned with those character traits that came from sports when I am positioned with encountering complex disparities or addressing systemic racism I go back to those skills. So basketball is a vital tool that I use to help me do this work currently in government. Time travel to that space, to the current. Now, the other part that's significant for me is I'll say my grandmother. Um, good old Annie, Annie Ruth was born in the 1930s and she was born in the South. She was born in Paris, Texas. And she was born in a time where there was explicit codification and explicit Jim Crow laws where separate but equal was the legal context of her experience. She told, you know, me very vivid stories around what it felt like to, you know, 
separate water fountains, right? What it felt like to pick cotton. And so she told me these stories of separation based on the dehumanization that was then codified in the system. Like it wasn't opinionation. These were these were legalities, these were laws that said you cannot interact with a place or a space based on the fact that you are a black woman and all that that comes with. And so she literally, those stories, I don't know if she knew then, but it formulated a curiosity in me to say, how is it that the humanity of black folks, um, indigenous folks, people of color, like our, our, our Latin folks, like how is it that the dehumanization of our, our Asian Pacific Islander folks, how is it explicitly um, added to a law? And so that that forced a curiosity in me. And so as a kid, I literally would do things like I was that kid who I watched Roots like endlessly. I literally I was that kid who watched Alex Haley Roots. And I was like, this is my favorite show. Like, imagine being a kid and saying your favorite show is the Roots saga. And only because that really came from my grandmother. And so that that early experience, what I can say is that between Alex Haley and any Ruth, like um, really just built a tenacity in me to really want to understand systemic racism because I was around the collateral impact that is dealt out to folks as a result of, as a byproduct of systemic racism. And so early on, I, I, I started to realize that America is not a meritocracy, right? Like people don't just choose to have inequity in their life. And so it's, these are things that were designed Right. These are things that are designed. And so these things then got me into a career to say if if and because systemic racism was designed into the fabric of this country. Then the next step would be how do you then redesign it? And how do you carry that? And so my origin story is rooted in the experience of a black woman navigating explicit systemic racism in, in a context where I, I watched the collateral impact to her humanity, and then I lived through the collateral impact of the generational racial inequities. We don't talk enough about the collateral impact of racism generationally and what that has done to folks. And so those are the things that when you live through watching the way in which the humanity of people are stolen based on a system, that permitted it, that allowed it, that exacerbated it. It, 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 this is, this is where you get to me is that I want to do something differently about it. Right. So I appreciate the question around the origin story and the origins of who I am is rooted in understanding how racism was created to steal the humanity of folks, to create a culture of a lack of belonging. It promoted othering. And I really appreciate what you said about the, the multi-generational impact. And I feel like we're starting to have those conversations a little bit more now, but the scope and size of that generational dehumanization not only impacts the, that humanity and equity, but it also impacts generational wealth. It impacts capital and access. My great-grandparents went to Howard and my great-grandmother trained as a pharmacist and never got to practice because it was the 
1940s and 1950s. And so that was stolen. That was stolen from your, much has been stolen from your family and generations. And it's wonderful to have that context so early on too. So you really, it sounds like you found your center very early on. And then take us through, you've got a lot of degrees. <laughs> you have, you're very educated, Kim. And so I want to hear more about your college experience, your, your higher education experience and how that started to lead into your eventual appointment and transition into the government sector. You know, I was busy in my twenties. <laughs> and let's just, I'll say, let's just say that I, I will be very frank and honest to say it was not purposeful. I was trying to find what direction I wanted to go in to be a helper, to be a contributor to being a humanitarian. And so I would say the acquisition of formal degrees are understood in a context to where that does not mean that I am in a hierarchy of being and understanding that I'm smarter than or not. Because there are folks who don't have degrees where they are they, 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 wise, brilliant, brilliant. And so I, I, I became to understand that having a former education and having multiple degrees does not disconnect me from like, you don't have to have degrees to be smart, right? For me, I was really just trying to find my path. I was trying to find my way. And literally, I would say my, my first degree in sociology, my undergraduate, was based on curiosity. And I literally remember that's where I actually adopted my love for civil rights and my love for different types of leaders, more namely leaders like Huey Newton. And so I remember in um, sociology when I adopted the degree to my undergraduate, I literally did like this project and I got selected to do this whole presentation on the Black Panther Party. And I was all about it. And so I dug into the roots of the 10 point plan and what that meant for liberation and what that meant for Bobby Seale and he knew and the way you're leading in that space and other significant leaders that we all know of, right? The ones that we don't know of as well. And so especially the Black Panther Party. And so I feel like that degree bred a curiosity for social justice, liberation, anti-racist movements, which then led me and propelled me into the psychological aspect of the way in which people move, think, and why. And then that led me to clinical counseling. Because at that point in time, I became interested in the cognitive science, the behaviorist component around why do people think the way they think and what is the behaviorist side of like theoretical orientation for behavior modification things. And, and then I realized like, ooh, I don't want to sit in the office and just talk to folks about the things that are impacting me. Because when you think about the theoretical orientations of psychology and of counseling, I didn't see a lot of um, people of color um, informing those theories. And it became a frustration point, to be honest with you. And when I got my um, master's in clinical counseling, the reason why I didn't decide to get a license in practice is based on just the frustration with the field. And so later on, I realized that, you know, most certainly I know clinicians who are licensed and they go forward. You have to make sure, you know, I think, I think there's a number like 5% of black folks are like clinical psychologists, right? So these are all things that, that's why I didn't go that route, but I did take the learning and the pedagogy around understanding the social science around thinking, which was beneficial. 
So instead of me going into individual practice and wanting to get my license, I shifted and said, wait a minute, I want to do more of a systems approach. I don't want to just work with individuals. I want to work with generations. And so that led me into early education, which then led to my second master's degree where I got into a program to get a master's degree in early education with the emphasis. It was education administrations with an emphasis in early education and an emphasis in policy studies. And that, so that's how I ended up getting two masters. It's literally because I wanted to figure out how to shift from individuals to systems and generations. And then that led me to a degree, a master's in education and policy studies. So those two degrees, I can't say that it was choiceful. It just so happened that they happened at the same time. And I'm also, I'm an ambitious person. So the first master, I started it and I moved back home and I went back. I said, I gotta finish this. Like I, I felt bad. Like I'm like, I'm like halfway through. And so I'm the kind of person when I when I start something, I want to finish it. So I ended up having two masters because I'm just stubborn. Like I'm not, I'm stubborn and I wanted to finish something. But I look back on it with those two degrees, literally, when you look at the symbiotic nature of clinical counseling and the connection of education generationally and policy studies, it led to giving me a skill set to do local government work where government work is complex. It's all the things. It's behaviorist-based, it's policy-based, it's systems-based. And so those degrees have helped me actually do my job. And also all the experience that I have um, ascertained as well in conjunction with the said degrees. And so usually I'm like, I don't, the degrees, it's not a doctor degree. It's, you know, it's cool to have them. It's cool. It's cool to hear how that journey unfolded and now probably maybe in the moment you didn't see that immediate connection. Well, you didn't know where you were headed. And now being able to reflect back and see the pieces that culminated into, yeah, government work is everything. And these programs set me up to have context for each of these pillars. Hey, if you are enjoying the show, be sure you subscribe and join our community at trailblazingincolor.com where we share resources, connect you with other amazing trailblazers in our trailblazer circles, and amplify our collective power. Hope we see you there. Okay, back to the show. And then, what happened next? Where did you where did you start and what was your focus in early career days? Goodness gracious, early career days. I think it's important on this podcast to say just this sometimes you're not quite clear where you're going to end up at. And so I look back on all of my professions and what I can say is this, every employer who I have worked with, I still have a relationship with today. Every employer, literally, and they, they, were, they were probably laugh because literally in Denver, for example, I would call every employer when I went to the next job and we would do a project together. Like literally, it is hilarious. Like, so my, my first job actually was in local government. And so I actually, early on as a youth, I worked in the, um, goodness gracious, it was, I think it was like the mayor's office of, I can't youth and families because different mayors change the names sometimes. And so I was like a youth opportunity coordinator in like the mayor's office of economic development, something of that term. I can't even really recall the full title. So my first job actually was in local government. And then prior to that, I actually started out in recreation. So as a youth, when I would come back from college, I worked in rec centers. And so because I was an athlete, right? And so what better job to have than to be an athlete and work in a rec center? That was fun. Like I was a coach. I was a referee. I was all the things. 
And so I early on that job in recreation kept me close and rooted into my community, right? Because I was able to be in the same rec that like gave me all the gifts and all the access points to opportunity. My first rec center actually paid for me to go to a, a junior nationals basketball trip in San Diego, actually. I just really realized that. My first trip to see the water was in San Diego by way of, and I remember being like, oh, there's water, right? And so all these things, my first job in government, and then I actually then got propelled into quasi-government. So I, long story short, the government in at the point in time contracted out the program to Denver Housing Authority. Part of the negotiation with the contract and RFP was for me to go with the contract. I was literally the last employee. And I like to say they felt bad for a young 22-year-old. I'm like, listen, I got, I got, I got it. This is my first job. So they negotiated me as the literally, because all the other employees had found out the job. And I had not been new to the position. Went to Denver Housing Authority, where I then did um, a lot of workforce opportunity program coordination. A lot of um, coordinating that federal program of the, it's WIA, now it's WIOLA, Workforce Investment Act Opportunity Program, federal investments to help with workforce entry. So did that for youth and adults. So that, there's context there, right? Then I went on to work at a school, was one of the youngest, got promoted pretty quickly um, in is Clayton Early Learning. I'll never forget, started out there working in early education, doing multi-generational work where I got promoted from like a center-based coordinator and then I was over all the family engagement and I had family engagement in all of the education areas. And so I got promoted in that position several times and did a lot of early education work and a lot of family systems work, a lot of work. And that's where I actually found my, my love for um, policy. The CEO then, I have to shout her out, Charlotte, um, she actually took me under her her mentorship and allowed me to learn some policy stuff. So I helped her do some policy stuff and advocacy with Clayton just based on my interest and curiosity. Then left Clayton, had some fun. So I was kind of wanting to do something different and had a short stint in um, a technology-based organization where I was the site coordinator for different districts around coordinating robotics and stop-motion animation classes for um, youth in partnership with principals. So that was fun. Then did that and decided that I'm like, I want to do more some more systems change. So it was the calling to say, I need to be in systems after doing case management, after doing education coordination with teachers and family service staff. I said, I want to be a part of systems that change and shift generations. So I put that into the to the atmosphere. And that's where I found my way into um, the Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships in Denver, Colorado, where literally that agency was founded on human rights, like my supervisor there, like he, Derek Okubo, he told us my first day in human rights community partnerships in the city and county of Denver was he brought out all the historic studies and his family, his um, grandfather and parents, his grandparents were actually in um, internment camps in Colorado. And so on my first week hiring me, he said, this is who I am. I am the child of and, and just so that early on, like hearing and just being in a legacy of a department, an agency that was part of addressing the impact of internment camps for our Japanese folks was life changing. So then they were also a part of the other things in Colorado. So actually, a lot of folks don't know this. 
that was the birthplace for the former office that we then built up to the mayor's office of social equity innovation. And so it priorly was the mayor's office of um, children of children and families, something of that na- of that nature. And then we shifted to do a racial justice focus. And so I would say all these things, I was grateful to have Mayor Hancock, who um, I just went to him one day and said, I think we should do more work around racial justice. And in government, sometimes people think you can't impact change. My story is of that. Like there was not a racial justice office. I mean, clearly human rights community partnerships had a racial justice focus. So it was fitting that a racial justice office was born in a human rights agency that had been there since the 1940s. The racial justice office in Denver was born out of that agency. That's the power of incubating that body of work. And so um, Mayor Hancock, he literally one day he said to me, what else can I do? And I said, we need to be more explicit about doing anti-racist work in government. And I was actually surprised at his um, response to me, which was, he said to me, give me recommendation and tell me how. And I was, I was literally shocked by that. Um, <laughs> I tell the story today where I'm like, oh, he's serious. And so at that point in time, I went back and designed and worked with some colleagues and a plan to do it. And then we joined forces with some other sister girls in Denver, Aaron Brown, Teriana, Jamie, Dr. Russo, all of us, all of us were part of that legacy in Denver to keep the work moving. And so that then led to the very first office on equity and social innovation that had an executive order to to do anti-racist work. That got me the attention then of San Diego. And so I would say all these things, all the past positions that I had has prepared me for the complexities in government. I have housing experience, I have education experience, right? And so I actually worked in a, um, a shelter that served women and families. All of these positions in my past prepared me for the complexities in government. So a lot of folks are always like, well, how do you know a little bit of this? I'm like, I've had a job in every area, in every system. I've done quasi-government education. I've done all the things which prepared me for the complex systems in local government. So that's that's how I got to this space. So I, I'm grateful to all the leaders who listened to me, mentored me, pushed me. All the times I failed in those positions because there's lots of failure <laughs> in large positions. All the things. Yeah, and well, for context, how long ago was this when the office launched, when Mayor Hancock said, tell me what to do? What year was that? You know, I remember the year only because I remember what was going on in the year. It was 2017 because we had a huge gender equity statewide summit that I um, helped organize. And out of that summit in 2017, that's when I gave the recommendation. But with CD, with CD recommendations and budget allocations, it took a year budget cycle. And so at the time, that was clearly not the, not the heightened point of what happened with um, George Floyd and the murder. And so I would say that Denver, by the time we got to 2019, so 2017 is when early on I started investigating the idea. 2018, the mayor started taking it really seriously. And at that point in time, he appointed a she was the chief of staff slash equity officer, Erin Brown. So her and I was then united 
and partnered with Tiriana, who was in another cultural arts department, to help build the work. So the three of us really were instrumental in just that. I always got to speak their names. Jamie Torres, current councilwoman in Denver, she was instrumental. Dr. Russo was instrumental in helping me think through some of the office stuff early on, going to Seattle to learn about the model. And so I would say 2019 officially is when the mayor of Denver, Mayor Hancock, I had positions then as the first director of the office. We did our first training to city council in August of 2018, our first race and equity training to all electeds. That's August 2018. And then the mayor and all his appointees got training, I want to say either that November or December of 2019. We then hit a pandemic in 2020 of March. In 2020 of February, we hosted three of the exonerated five to talk about racial injustice in our city, which was a huge event. And then we hit with a pandemic. And then we're hit with the murder of George Floyd. And so I would like to say we nobody was prepared for the overlapping pandemics, the social reckoning around all things racial injustice when George Floyd was murdered. And there are many before George Floyd, right? Eric Gardner, like there's many before, there's many names, many, many names that we need to speak and we know. But in the, I think it happening during the pandemic, we saw nationally a seismic increase in these kinds of offices. Just, it was just bursting at the seams. Like you went from like a hundred and probably 10 racial equity offices like this to over 400 like literally within a two year span in response to what was happening with all the protests. So I would say that timeline from the time that we did our first training in 2018 to all of council to the pandemic, then our office was allocated to respond to the pandemic. Literally my entire office was shifted in emergency operations. So I literally served, my role became different. I now became, so instead of being a director of the mayor's office of innovations when you deploy a citywide emergency i became the chief of the people branch in all of government for the city and county of denver the chief of operations for all things people and structure to respond to the pandemic and so what that meant is that i've partnered with the school district partnered with the um section chief which is the mayor in the pandemic and we rolled out an ambitious testing vaccine plan to really um, fight the pandemic. So did that for, I literally think it was, I'm looking to have an award here behind me, but I wanna say I've served in the emergency operation for I think it was like 207 days. It was, it was something that was like, emergency operations are not built to stand up for more than, usually it's operation is like maybe a week. <laughs> so COVID is still happening and still very real. And so all that timeline piece it gave context to an office that structurally we had to put everything on pause to respond to the pandemic. So our operations around equity was integrated in the pandemic. And so we kept doing other things like rolling out budget equity stuff as well. And so I appreciate the question around the timeline because it really gives a positioning around where was I at in the pandemic? Where was I at before the pandemic? My role was to help build out a significant structure in government in 2019 and 2020, starting in 2018. So that three to four year span was the early seeds of racial justice work in Denver. 
which makes me honored then to build the first office here in San Diego for Mayor Todd Gloria as the first appointed chief of race and equity. So no, they're, they're, they're huge shoes to fill, large things to carry, but this now bringing it forward is now I get to be a part of another first. Apparently I like first, apparently I like, apparently in my life, the ancestor said, you're gonna do two anti-racist offices. You're gonna build one in Denver and build one in San Diego. But I can say this is that I didn't do it alone. To build this kind of work, you never do it alone. Like there are many revolutionary warriors who were right with me building out the office. So I'm excited about working for Mayor Gloria to build out the first Department of Race and Equity in this city, in the city of 1.4 million folks with a budget of $5 billion and serving over 12,000 employees, right? So I'm excited to do all those things. Yeah, wow. Thank you for going so in depth into the timeline because it's both what you said earlier is that we think systems change takes a long, 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 long time. And in some ways it does, but in other ways, there are things we can do and wins we can have over time. And yet it also doesn't happen overnight. It's this concerted effort waiting a year for the budgets to align and to start to bring together your coalition of support. And what's this going to look like? And who do we need? And what kind of accessibility do we need to people, to systems that will give us what and what the information that we need and when we need it and the access too. And so now you've got these shoes to fill, as you said, but actually you're wearing the very first pair of shoes here in San Diego and creating this department. And I like that you mentioned also about the huge increase in offices of these types. So I want to hear about the journey to moving to San Diego and saying yes to this role. And then I want to ask a little bit more about that coalition building. Let's start with making the transition to San Diego, leaving home, leaving your city. What was that like? Um, I will say so shifting. <laughs> I had no plan to leave Denver at all. And there were probably three reasons that made me want to move to the city. And I'll, I'll name the first is one was the mayor's chief of innovation officer, Kirby Brady. Me and Kirby, we crossed paths and I was like, wow, like she's doing dope work in San Diego. She actually got wind of the work that I was doing in Denver and I was like, wow, they're doing dope work. And so we connected and just started talking about the things that they're doing here versus what I was doing in Denver. So she's one of the reasons. And so when you have folks who have the level of brilliance as a Kirby Brady it inspired you to want to work alongside of someone like that. So she was one of the reasons. The second reason was Todd Gloria. Mayor Todd Gloria, when you meet him, like I can tell you, when I when I met that man, there's everything in the ancestors that just said, I need to make sure that I am working to support every vision that he wants to bring to place. He is the first openly gay, Latin, Filipino, all the things. He's the first. How do you not support the first? And so when I met him, I said, I'm going to support the first and I'm going to do everything in my capacity to make sure he has 
a team around him to do the things to bring the vision forward of an inclusionary city in an equitable city in San Diego. So that it, it's hard. I'm telling you, when Todd Gloria, Mayor Gloria asks you, it's hard to say no because he is the most inspiring leader and convincing leader, right? So that's the second reason. The third reason is San Diego. Like as a part of the interview process, I actually, I, I came out here and I, the first neighborhood I actually went to was um, San Ysidro. And I walked around and I literally looked at the fact that this is the eighth largest city in the country. It's a city that borders Mexico, that borders Tijuana. And in that moment, when I was walking around San Ysidro, I saw structural inequity. I saw all the things that come with the generational conversation around, we live in a country that was founded on stolen land and stolen labor. And I say that purposely. This country was founded on stolen land and stolen labor. And so when you stand in a place like San Ysidro, it vibrates. And so that vibration then spoke to me to say, this is the place where the next part of your career will play out. Because at that point in time, even though I say that these are large shoes that I feel, there are so many ancestors that I now am walking in line with to do this complex work. And so those three things led me to come here to leave family and leave all that I knew to this city. And when I make that kind of choice as a black woman, there's levels of calibration. When you're the first chief of race and equity office, who literally the ordinance, the ordinance is a codified document. It's written into city charter that says that I will do the anti-racist work. I say this, if we start with the fact that we are walking on stolen land, that we are impacted by stolen labor, all the things, then how does one expect for a black woman to solve and address, to eliminate systemic racism? It is not, that has never been done. The elimination of systemic institutional racism has never been done. So when I walk into the room, I remind folks that to quote the great Sojourner Truth, am I not a black woman? Are you asking me as a black woman to eliminate systemic racism? There is a level of flawed thinking and a lack of structural exclusion and a lack of understanding racism if you're asking me to do that. It has not, people have died, been lynched for trying to do the thing. And so for me, I say, oh no, that can't be the expectation for a black woman to solve institutional racism. That is not, that is not a thing. What I will do and what I am charged with doing is making sure we have structures and systems in place to strategically dismantle racial disparities in a way in which we create strategies and plans and allocate budgets using city services with our 12,000 city employees to serve our 1.4 million people in the eighth largest city in the country. So I calibrate expectations because literally I would say the first two months that I was here, folks were like, what's your plan? What would you get done in a hundred days? I'm like, are you asking me my plan for some reason? Like, I think people kind of like look at leaders in that way where it's like, 
listen, that is not the expectation. It is not a thing. Because ain't, ain't the sojourn of truth, and ain't I not a black woman? As a black woman, I cannot do that in a country that was born to the things that exploit my own humanity. And so all of that, I would say this journey to San Diego has been a reminder of constantly what I am charged with, but I also am conscientious of the fact that there are so many warrior trailblazers to use what you say. There are so many trailblazers who are, who have, are still trailblazing that I am united with along this journey to build up the first department of race and equity in a city like San Diego. Which is such a great segue into how do you do it? How, what have been some of your practices around building the support system you need? Because yes, this is a very heavy load you carry. And in spite of how often you set expectations, which is fantastic, we still need a lot of resources and a lot of learning from one another. So even in the context of other race and equity offices or just the coalition and support system you've built up for yourself to feel solid in this work in a new community. What does that process look like for you? Well, I'll start with, I am on a multi-city cohort call or coordination group. Like we have LA, Oakland, San Francisco, where we all get together to support each other, to encourage each other, to share. So that's helpful. There is no linear approach or plan to dismantle racism in local government. I'll say it again. There's no linear plan or approach to dismantle, from an evaluative standpoint, racism in government. Not a thing. So the sharing with infrastructures, with colleagues, allow you to say, what are you trying? What are you failing at? Because that's a part of this work. To do anti-racist work in local government, it thrives on innovation and failure. With this kind of role, you have to ask for the authority to fail and to innovate because how do you address complex racial disparities and systems if you don't try innovative infrastructures? And so the colleagues that I talk with from you know, LA, San Francisco, and Oakland, we come together and say, hey, are you trying this? Try that. Oh, and are we say this? Well, I tried that and that didn't work. And so this work is upward, down, forward, back, it's in the circles. Upward, down, forward, back, in the circles. And so you have to sometimes ground yourself in that. I, I liken this work to being in parallel to a city that's next to the ocean where it's vast. It can feel really large. It can feel like you're trying to hold on to the ocean in your hands. You can't. You can't capture the magnitude and the vastness of the ocean. It's not a thing, right? And so I try to try to grab onto the pieces that I can or the, the, the drops, right? And so the way that I do it is through the cohort with other cities. I also build groups. And so um, that's how I actually, with Sarah meeting you, was through that. Like I instantly come in here. I said, I need to be around some trailblazers. And so we started, I have to shout out Carrie on this podcast. I met Carrie and I said to Carrie, hey, I'm new to this city. And can you help? I, it was a very selfish ask. Is I said, Carrie, can you introduce me to some, some, some impactful trailblazers in San Diego? 
And we literally started that group where we just brought together informally a group of trailblazers of women of color to talk about what they're doing in San Diego. And so that group actually in those first few months gave me the ability to breathe. And now some of those women, including yourself, I connect with. That's why I'm on this podcast, right? Because clearly to prioritize the podcast is everything based on the fact that you're in the cohort that we have, the group that we have, right? So I, I try to I try to build those types of things. I have some great colleagues. I can tell you this, that the Mary Gloria has hired, we function like a family. And so they take care of we they and they they take care of me, right? Like and so being new here, not having any family, I got an instant family. And the mayor and his team, our team, they take care of me, like making sure that we have all the things. Um, I got COVID and folks are checking on me, right? Because like I don't have family here. And so like all the things, I don't have COVID now, just so we're clear on the podcast. At some point, everybody's got COVID. But all the things, um, I would say that having a family-like environment in the administration helps. Having a sister-girl circle of trailblazer helps. Having a cohort, city call, all those things paired with my own level of self-care helps. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing all of those because I think it's a really helpful reminder that we don't necessarily just have the support systems we need. We have to cultivate them. So the fact that you reached out to Carrie, Carrie Sawyer, she's the founder of Diversity by Design and the Inclusion First Project. Shout, Shout out. out to Carrie. We love Carrie. But asking, who do I need to know? Who, who can fill this need I have and we all have to communicate our learnings, to communicate our failures and in a number of different contexts. So you're in government and within our group, we've got so many different sectors represented, technology, nonprofit, and many, many others where at the intersection we're not, you're not only learning, we're not only learning from those in our industries, in our fields, but we're cross-pollinating ideas beyond just what we're individually capable of in our role. So, so significant in terms of what we're able to accomplish when we come together with intention, with purpose, with outcomes. And then my next question was going to be, how do you decompress when your work is your passion, your purpose, your calling, and also so intrinsically connected to your identity and your personhood. How do you take care of yourself? You know, at this point in my career, like moving to San Diego, I'll be honest and I'll be very explicit to say, when you're starting out early in your career, in your early 20s, or even in my early 30s, I didn't have, and I might be, you know, getting me read about who, how old I am, you know, I had not earned the right to say no. I did not, in my early 20s and even early 30s, I did not earn the right to say no or I didn't earn the right to decide what's essential. And I didn't earn the right to have boundaries around self-care because you're like, when you're in your early career, it's like you're like trying to do everything. Like you, you the you, the hours you're putting into your profession, like you, we talked through like the number of degrees that I had. Like I was in school and working, right? Like, when do you live like, I was a coach on the weekends to bitty basketball, little babies. You know, I was coaching the seven, six-year-olds, which was hilarious. On the weekends, going to school at the rec, I was doing all kind of stuff. Just, I could At this point in time, I could not manage that kind of schedule. <laughs> like, who's a coach working on a master's degree and having a job? 
it, I had about two jobs and working on a degree. So I, I'll, I say all that to say this is that I had not earned, at this point in my career, I have earned the right and the privilege to say no and to have boundaries to prioritize my self-care. I am no good to no one if I am not healthy and I am not rested. I cannot use the best of my intellectual capital if I am not in a place of restoration. And I use the word restoration. Restoration is revolutionary. Restorative is another point that goes with that, is that I lead with the fact that like, if I'm being revolutionary, I have to be restorative in the way that I approach this work. And to be restorative is to be revolutionary and it is to make sure I'm prioritizing self-care. And so what that looks like for me, of course, in a city like San Diego, it is a tale of two cities. You have places in San Diego that you cannot not, the the beautiful beaches are just, out of, it's just, it's something out of the, it's just, it, 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 it doesn't make any, it defies any reason. When you come from a landlocked place like Denver, Colorado, we have our mountains. We have our mountains. The mountains are beautiful. But when you're next to water, but you also are in a city where the overlay of like, there are some places that are not as structurally attended to. So for self-care for me, I am a walker. I have to move energy in my body. And so when I have a, a day of challenge, I, I play basketball because that's where my early roots are. That's where I actually exert energy. I haven't done so much lately because I'm kind of scared of getting COVID. So I'll be honest. So when you're playing basketball with 10 women in a court with 20 other kids next to you, it doesn't make you feel optimistic about your COVID life. And so um, to de-stress, it's either playing basketball. I like to walk. And so having a city like San Diego, like it's, I, I walk on the different beach locations. That's how I de-stress. It's literally like exploring and walking on the beaches. It's playing sports. Um, I also, I like to read as well when I when my brain is not tired, right? And the other thing is that I like to just not do nothing. Like I'm actually a lot of folks don't notice about me. I am an introvert. I am an all the way introvert. And so I need a lot I need to recoup in solitude. And so a hobby of mine sometimes is to do nothing. <laughs> like I wanna just sometimes just lay on the floor and not have any plans and not have to engage in the cerebral part of my intellect all the time. And so all those things are ways that I take care of myself. Um, now that I am settled here in San Diego, I have families and friends who are visiting. And so that's been a great thing to, apparently my friends and family, they see this as a vacation location. And so I'm like, okay, y'all are getting a little carried away now. Um, so <laughs> I have a lot of my, like my best friends and my, my God kids, they come out, they visit me. And so those types, those types of interactions, they just fill me up. And of course, I was remiss if I didn't say this. Self-care is my faith. And so I carry my faith with me and my, my, my belief in divinity and my belief in um, God's purpose for me. And so all those things keep me very settled in my revolutionary restorative self-care. That's how I approach it. Speaking of self filling and just filling yourself back up. I mean, this conversation has filled me all the way up. So thank you for sharing your journey, your wisdom. There's so much that we can all 
learn, and I, I think we all are learning about how to approach this work with intention, with self-connection and care of self, with the community of support that we need, and what you're doing is revolutionary. So thank you, Kim. We always end these conversations with a few quick takes. And so let's, let's start. And you already answered this in some form, but let me ask who has trailblazed the path for you, Kim? Every woman, and I say this purposely, every woman who has dedicated their life to just being, every woman who sacrifices um, their needs for someone else, every woman who their humanity is stolen based on supremacy and patriarchy. And the women, when I speak their names, I can clearly say my mother, um, Sandra Kay. I can say my grandmother, Annie Ruth Rees. I can even say my sister, um, Andrea. I can say all of my sister girls, right? So I have so many trailblazers in my life that not only did they pave the way for me, they continually uphold me on my journey. And so it is, that's why I like the name that you have with trailblazers. We are trailblazing forward, back, up, down all the time. And we trailblaze in many ways. If you are a, a, a if you are someone who um, is a homemaker, you're a trailblazer, right? Because you 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 you're taking care of people, right? So I'd like to look at those folks who are are um are workers in our hotels, right? In our grocery stores. These are all trailblazers. Like the folks that in the pandemic when we were low on toilet paper and meat and all that, trailblazers. Those are all the people that I am reminded of. Like if they can do it, I can do it. So I'm mm -hmm. I'm grateful to all the folks who labor or who are exploited even um, to keep giving me inspiration and keep doing this work. Cause those are the folks that I show up every day to, to work for. I work for those folks. Um, so mm -hmm. they're the trailblazers and my grandmother mm -hmm. clearly like she is the matriarchal trailblazer. Yeah, definitely. Oh, thank you for the chills you just gave me with that. It's so true. We, we think it has to be big and it has, it has to be loud and, monumental, but it's really those everyday moments of showing up and serving others in spite of yourself, in spite of, you know, everything that's going on, still showing up to care for one another and be a part of this bigger system and make it better for everyone. <sighs> okay, next question. <laughs> so good. What is a book you've read that changed the way you think about other people and or the world? That's an easy one because I just finished reading, um, all about love by bell hooks mm, and it, i have it, not read that oh yet. it comes in the and she recently passed away too so when bell hooks passed away and i was familiar with some of her quotes or just things that she talked about but i just needed to consume who she was as an author which showed me so many things so all about love by bell hooks is really it's it's mixing me up right now it's it's making me unlearn what i thought to be true about love in a in an expansive way where what I thought to be true about love is bell hooks has made me question that 
and has given me an ability to unlearn the language that I use when I talk about love and liberation. The way that Bell Hooks talks about love is that it is when you are the definition of love that she offers to us in terms of the book that has shifted me currently is you are acting in a will to provoke or inspire the spiritual growth and transformation and liberation of yourself and someone else. So I will say that again. When you are extending and you are acting in the will of love, you are inspiring and cultivating your own spiritual transformation, liberation, and growth. And you're doing so for others as well. So it's symbiotic in that focus on your own liberation and spiritual growth. And then in turn, if you're acting in the will of love, you are doing so for somebody else. And so Bell Hooks has offered me the gift of unlearning what it means to will love and use the ingredients of the actions of care, um, support, um, loyalty, all the things. And so liberation and love are tethered together because I truly believe that if we are going to craft a, a a better humanity, it will be it will pivot on liberation and love. It has to pivot on liberation and love. I cannot exploit you. I cannot exist in systemic racism if I say I love you because that is not aligned with your spiritual growth, right? And so spiritual growth means that I can't exploit you. It means that I cannot steal land from you. Liberation means you're free. It means you're free. You're free. And so I offer up through bell hooks, through me, from her, in that if we're going to craft a, a, a humanity that is built on inclusiveness, that is built on belonging, let it not be built on liberation and love. So in that way, it brings in the totality of difference in our humanity in a way where we're all interconnected and we're not going to exploit based on who a person is, which they just may be different. So I offer that up in terms of like, she has changed my life with the way she talks about love and liberation, the way that she talks about um, supremacy and patriarchy within that. And so when you talk about love and liberation, you have to tease out supremacy in the role of patriarchal thinking and structures. And so that's why that book, I still am unpacking it. I, I've read it and I just cannot even, I can't, I, it, it, I'm unlearning so many things. So I, I give thanks to that ancestor, Bill Hooks, for he changed my life with liberation and love. Like I, that is, that is, that is my compass at this point. Liberation and love mm-hmm. is my compass. Mm-mm-mm. And thank you for giving us that gift too and sharing it with us. And I've read books like that where it's like I read a chapter and then I need weeks to process because you've just given me so many head explosions in such a short period of time. And I would imagine that's kind of how it's like. I've been reading Audre Lorde, same, same thing. Like, whoa, I need some time to just revisit this page, just work on this one page. Right. <laughs> and so that's, that's, that's why it's a lifetime of work. It's we're building and, and we're remixing and we're pulling our ancestors in and, 
and others' ancestors to share and learn from the collective wisdom. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Finally, what are you excited about right now? What are you hopeful about? I am hopeful for the vision and the operational guidance of what Mayor Gloria will do for this city. I truly trust him as a leader. I am hopeful that who he is will change the generational landscape of San Diego. And to be a part of that at this point in history, I'm hopeful for that. Like to work for such a honorable man that pivots on integrity, that pivots on like um, just genuine um, focus to do and build an inclusive, equitable to sustain a city such as that is I'm hopeful for that. And so I'm hopeful that in this position, I get to be a part of Oftentimes, you don't hear about folks like myself in history. We are the silent movement makers. And so we are the silent revolutionary soldiers in government. And so I, I, I am hopeful that I am going to be a part of history that's going to make a difference 10 years from now with the work that we're doing now. That's what I'm hopeful for and I'm excited for. And I honestly have no doubts that that will come to fruition. Thank you, Kim for everything, all the knowledge you've dropped today, all the work you're doing day in and day out to make our city and ultimately our country and our world a better place, a more equal place and a more inclusive, intentional, community-driven place. So thank you for being on the podcast and this brilliant conversation. Yes, yes. You take care and you keep trailblazing and invite trailblazers to trailblaze. Thank you. Bye, Kim. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Trailblazing in Color podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to hit subscribe for future episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at, at trailblazingincolor and at trailblazingincolor.com slash podcast. The Trailblazing in Color podcast is created and executive produced by me, Sarah Chapman Becerra. The Trailblazing in Color podcast season one production team includes Alicia Archer and the podcast Bestie team, led by Angie M. Jordan and supported by Gene Credit and Sarah Decker. Our theme song was composed by Troy Chapman. Thanks, Dad. Thank you.